You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Do we need to cater drug therapies to specific subsets in patients living with diabetes? Joining us to discuss catering drug therapies to specific subsets is clinical professor of medicine at Cornell Medical College in New York City, Dr. Louis Aroni. Dr. Aroni, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks very much, Steve. What are we learning about the merging of diabetes and obesity? Because we know they're so closely related. Well, I think that now more than ever, it's become clear that gaining weight if you're a diabetic is not a good thing. And that if we can help our diabetic patients to lose weight, we can help many of the complications that are associated with their diabetes. And what we're seeing is a merging of the the management of obesity and diabetes so that medications that control glucose but also help the patient to lose weight are not only becoming available, but I think are becoming increasingly favored as first-line therapy. You know, Lou, I think you're ahead of your time because all of our patients with type 2 are overweight, and they're frustrated. We're frustrated. We know it's tough to lose weight. Let's talk about the need to talk about subsets of medications. Well, we look at the world a little bit differently than the typical diabetes uh, physician or the internist who, who practices a lot of diabetes medicine uh, might do it because of our focus on obesity management. So we've studied many of the diabetes agents that cause weight loss as, as weight loss agents. And so we look at diabetes drugs as those that cause weight gain and those that uh, promote weight loss or are weight neutral because a big part of what we do is to see people with diabetes and to rearrange their diabetes medicines to find a regimen that controls their glucose but is weight neutral or a weight loser. And we often find that when we do that, the patient starts to lose weight. Metformin would have to be one of the first lines, if not the first line. We find that it is very, a very valuable tool, and what many patients will describe is a greater sense of satiety or fullness when you start them on metformin. And it's interesting because many times we'll see a patient with a pretty high glucose in the two to 300 range started on a sulfonylurea. By, by a physician, they're concerned that they won't get enough of a glucose drop. So this might be a very obese patient with a, with a high glucose first diagnosed. And what happens in that situation is the patient, in, in my opinion, starts to eat up to, to the insulinotropic effect of the sulfonylurea, and they may start to gain weight. Uh, I think that in every case, metformin should be the first-line therapy for patients, assuming that their creatinine is, is within range. 
You know, the sulfonylurea is, as you know quite well, they, they've been shown to not really work that well over the long term. They have a higher secondary failure rate. And I, I also want to say that when I looked at the early literature of sulfonylureas, most of the folks that volunteered for clinical trials back in the 50s and 60s had a very high baseline A1C. So any drug used in a population with a high baseline A1C had a huge drop in A1C. So uh, And I saw a recent study where they used sulfonylurea in patients with a fairly low A1C, actually in comparison to a DPP-4 inhibitor, and the A1C drops were the same. So we have, the, I think we have a, a misconception that sulfonylureas are more powerful. And of course, they also can cause hypoglycemia, and then when you get that, you have to eat, and that retards weight loss as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about the TZDs. Well, TZDs uh, we know are effective. Uh, we know that Actos uh, now seems to, to be the preferred agent, but we reserve uh, an agent like that for further down in the hierarchy, despite the fact that it may be in an algorithm because of the potential for weight gain. And, and again, Steve, I want to point out that the average patient who comes to see us, uh, the, the average Man weighs about 270 pounds. The average woman weighs 220 pounds, and, and like many of these patients, they're taking uh, they're taking eight medications, and they, they have sleep apnea. And that's something we vigorously look for and treat because that's another thing that we can uh, manage that can help their glucose to to be reduced. But um, we often will not use a TZD, and we might jump to something like a GLP-1 or a DPP-4 right away from, from metformin uh, because, again, we're so interested in getting the patient to lose weight. So in terms of the DPP-4s and GLP-1 agonists, how do you differentiate those groups in terms of approaching a patient who is obese? Well, the DPP-4s appear to be weight neutral, or they may be associated with slight weight loss, whereas the GLP-1 analogs have very reasonable weight loss associated with them. Both of the ones that are available, exenatide and liraglutide, have weight loss. So uh, often a strategy we'll use is to use those initially to induce weight loss along with metformin. And then if the patient's glucose is under good control, which it, it almost always w will be, we will offer them the option of going on to a DPP-4. And some people say, well, do, don't people get afraid of taking the needle? And, you know, we, we take it out, we show it to them, we spend time with patients to, to try to show them. Not everybody may have the time that, that we're able to spend with patients, and so I'm not saying everybody should practice in the exact same way, but we often will use that, um, assuming it's covered by their insurance, as a way to help them to lose weight. So, you know, we'll jump over that as a way to help. Now, another strategy might be to use the DPP-4, see if they lose weight. If they don't, uh, then to, to go to the GLP-1. So we're looking at both of these outcomes, both the weight and the glucose, as the goals of therapy. Thanks, Lou. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Lou Aroni. We are discussing catering drug therapies to specific subsets for patients with type 2 diabetes. 
Well, these subsets seem to be pretty important, and I, I really like your approach, is look is really taking into account the obesity factor because we've been we've been ignoring that. We've been focusing in just on glucose lowering, and we know now that the cardiovascular risk factors are probably more important than the glucose uh, levels in many of our patients with type 2, at least in terms of the most common cause of death, which is cardiovascular disease. Let's talk a little bit more about the subsets. Uh, where do you put some of the medications that we seem to not use as frequently, let's say like the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors? Well, we use those quite a bit. Uh, many people feel that they don't do very much, but I don't agree. I think that they work well in some people, and in other people they don't seem to work well at all. Um, what we've seen is that in, in some patients we get a very good lowering of glucose, and we also get a sense of satiety. It may be that compounds like this trigger some of the satiety mechanisms by resembling carbohydrate. Uh, you know, that that's still a little up in the air, but I believe mm -hmm. that may be the case. Your approach is quite unique. And, you know, how, how do we implement a more personalized medicine approach effectively and safely, especially utilizing these different subsets of diabetes medications and, of course, individualizing therapy, which your group obviously does? We take what I have called a weight-centric approach to diabetes management. And what that means is we don't look at weight above all, but we factor weight into the overall equation so that if, if we can get someone to lose weight as part of getting their glucose under control, that is extremely important to us. But we're not going to let someone sit there with an HbA1c of 11 and, and their weight's under control. That is totally unacceptable. Now, there are other medications that we often find are are the offenders. So medicines like beta blockers, high doses of beta blockers, uh, we've found and, and it's been reported in the literature, can interfere with glucose control. Sometimes asking the cardiologist or if you're managing the patient, changing the beta blocker. We, I can't tell you how many patients we see who are on beta blockers for glucose uh, for their blood pressure control, and then as time goes on, they develop an impaired fasting glucose, maybe you should be changing them to an ACE inhibitor at that point. And you'd be able to not only, I, I think you, that's the, the better choice, but it will also, I believe, help them to get their weight in control. Mood-controlling medicines, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, while they have a reputation as medicines that can cause weight loss. Everyone who takes these for more than a year tends to gain weight. It looks like people lose their sense of fullness. They just have a loss of satiety. And we've developed strategies to manage that, which are a little bit more sophisticated. You can't take people off these, but it can be very difficult to manage the patient who's on an SSRI. So let's say you have a, a patient with a diabetic neuropathy and they're they're taking SSRIs as part of the pain management, or they're, they're taking anti-epileptic drugs for the pain management, those medicines can be part of the weight gain, and they can increase glucose. And so looking for alternatives that can help to control the underlying problem. Well, it sounds to me like you're taking a patient, you're not just looking at the glucose, you're looking at all their 
medical conditions and the medications that they use and looking at their effect on satiety and weight. And I think that drives the whole system. And we and you and I both know you don't need to lose a lot of weight to see a big effect on glucose, lipids, and blood pressure. I'd like to thank our guest, clinical professor of medicine at Cornell Medical College in New York City, Dr. Louis Aroni. Dr. Aroni, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.